focus on headline. Alright, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headlines. For this, joining us in the studio, we have our reporters Han Dan and Yi Han. Guys, welcome. Good evening. Alright, uh, we are going to start off uh, with South Korea, heading over to South Korea's southwestern city, Gwangju, because today, May 18th, a very significant day uh, in Korean history. President Yoon suk along with uh, 200 other politicians from both the ruling and opposition parties, gathering uh, to, of course, commemorate and remember the May 18th pro-democracy movement. Uh, Tan, a lot of media attention was focused on how today's commemoration was uh, very much different from the past. So let's get the details of the event. Right. President Yoon suk commemorated the event in a quite different style compared with the past conservative leaders. As you know, the May 18th pro-democracy movement was an uprising that broke out in 1980 against then-authoritarian regime ruled by the late military dictator Chun Doo-hwan that occurred in Gwangju and surrounding areas in South Cheolla province, a traditional liberal stronghold. So ceremonies commemorating the movement were largely more simplified by the conservative leaders and parties than the liberals in the past. But President Yoon suk yeol in efforts to send a strong message of national unity, he showed some very rare moves. He made an entrance through the door of democracy with bereaved families of democratic fighters, marking the first conservative leader to do so. He also sang the protest song 임해 행진곡, or Marching for the Beloved, breaking from previous conservative governments which had refrained from singing that song in unison. In his six-minute keynote speech, Yun stressed that the May 18th spirit that protected democracy is the cornerstone of national unity, mentioning the word unity twice. The word freedom was the most frequently mentioned word in his speech in which he said the value of democracy and human rights is a philosophy of integration that unites the people. And what was notable was that he added a sentence that wasn't in the script. He said, all Koreans who love freedom and justice are all citizens of Gwangju, expanding the May 18th spirit of democracy to beyond Gwangju, the home turf of the liberals. President Yoon had previously stated that he believes the May 18th spirit must be stipulated in the Constitution, but he didn't mention directly about this and instead defined the spirit as the restoration of a universal value and the very spirit of the democratic Constitution. Yeah, and uh, that very message that you just talked about here was something that uh, he also said, I believe, uh, back in November of last year when he was the then uh, presidential candidate. Uh, but uh, Tan, an unprecedented number of politicians from both the political aisle headed down for the event. Uh, tell us more about this. That's right. Except for a few who were physically unable to attend due to business trips or COVID-19, nearly all members of the ruling People Power Party accompanied the president, while about 100 members of the main opposition Democratic Party were also there. Leaders of both parties attended a series of election uh, policy meetings ahead of the June 1st local elections while meeting with citizens in Gwangju. President Yoon Seung-yeol suggested that his cabinet ministers and top presidential aides also accompany him, also a quite rare move for a conservative leader. And instead of boarding a helicopter, he chose to ride the KTX bullet train for a more intimate conversation with them. 
Now, we do have this uh, new administration led by, uh, again, the 20th president, Yoon suk yeol He is, uh, you know, carefully picking out the lineup of new cabinet. There has been some hiccups, but nevertheless, uh, we're almost closing in on a full cabinet here. Ready to show 16 cabinet members as of yesterday. ji let's get the details of his uh, new cabinet. Well, yesterday on May 17th, President Yoon suk appointed Han Dong-hoon as Justice Minister and Kim Hyun-suk as Gender Minister. Han Dong-hoon is a former colleague of President Yoon and a senior prosecutor. Uh, Kim Hyun-suk is a former lawmaker. Both are apparently controversial picks. Han Dong-hoon faced opposition by Democratic Party lawmakers during his confirmation hearing because of some allegations uh, that his daughter exaggerated her extra- extracurricular activities in high school to get into college. But this was not the only source of controversy. He joined the prosecution in 2001, and since then, he's known for investigations into high-profile cases, and oftentimes he accompanied Yoon suk uh, One of the cases he was involved in was the probe of a corruption scandal that ousted the former president, Lee Myung-bak. And then he was also investigating the case on f- the former justice minister, Cho Guk, and his family. He even went uh, he even worked under Yoon on cases against Lee Jae-yong, the vice chairman of Samsung Electronics. Kim Hyun-suk is an economic professor at Sungshir University and a former lawmaker. She will be the Minister of Ministry of Gender Equality and Family, which is an agency Yoon suk pledged to abolish before he became the president. Uh, Kim Hyun-suk served as Yoon suk special policy advisor while managing Korea's low birth rate-related policies, and she was a senior secretary for employment and welfare in the Park Geun-hye administration. She was asked about the future of the Ministry of Gender during her confirmation hearing, but she struggled to answer the questions, hence the controversy. Uh, however, a formal appointment of Health Minister nominee Chong Ho-young was not included in the presidential office announcement late uh, in the afternoon. So if we add these two appointments, 16 out of 18 minister positions are now filled. And this means that the two remaining positions, the Ministers of Health and Education, are yet to be filled. Yeah, of course, uh, the Health Minister nominee <coughs> Chong Ho-young also facing some allegation with this uh, family-related uh, issues. Uh, we saw the uh, previous uh, Education Minister nominee resign right uh, days before the hearing in itself but uh, 16 out of 18 uh, we're almost there uh, these are of course the uh, positions that the president himself could just uh, you know pull push forward on uh, the other question is the biggest spot to fill uh, the, uh, is the prime minister spot. This is the only spot in which it requires a parliamentary confirmation. Uh, let's talk about the, uh, this further. Well, Prime Minister nominee Han Dok-soo is also waiting for the pre- preliminary confirmation. And he is a South Korean politician who served as the 34th Prime Minister of South Korea from 2007 until February 2008. The two parties have agreed to hold a plenary, uh, plenary, plenary parliament session on the 20th of May, so two days from now, and vote on Yoon Suk-yeol's motion to appoint Prime Minister nominee Han Dok-soo. May 20th as Friday, and it is 47 days after Yoon Suk-yeol named the former prime minister as a nominee to be. This decision was made on Tuesday. Uh, right now, by law, a nom- nominee for prime minister can be appointed to post, but there are certain conditions. 50% or more of the lawmakers at the 300 
member National Assembly should vote, and at least half of them must vote in favor of the appointment. Yeah, and so from the start, uh, because uh, Han Duk-soo did work with the uh, the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party before, uh, what uh, President Yoon Suk-yeol and his administration was hoping for was a bipartisan agreement, but that's certainly not uh, happening right now. Uh, we are going to move on to the diplomatic front. Uh, government plans to announce South Korea's participation as a founding member of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Uh, in short, the IPEF. Uh, this is the U.S.-led initiative that brings together the regional players in tightening uh, to tighter cooperation in the field of economy. So, Tan, what do we know so far? Well, according to Blue House sources, President Yoon plans to officially announce South Korea's participation as one of the founding members of the IPEF during his summit with U.S. President Joe Biden when he visits Seoul later this week. And soon after the summit, next Tuesday to be exact, President Yoon is expected to virtually take part in an IPEF summit, which will likely lead to an official launch of the regional initiative. The summit will be held in Japan during President Biden's visit, and he's expected to preside over the summit, which will mark the start of negotiations for an official launch of the regional initiative. The IPEF is a framework unveiled by Biden at the East Asia Summit last October to strengthen U.S. economic cooperation with Indo-Pacific partners in key areas such as fair trade, supply chain resilience, infrastructure, clean energy, and decarbonization. This is no surprise, as uh, President Yoon had mentioned during his first budget speech before the National Assembly on Monday, that he will discuss boosting cooperation with the U.S. in the global supply chain through the IPEF. Uh, A presidential official told reporters that it's an open, consultative body of regional players, and so South Korea is chiming in with the flow. This, of course, will raise the eyebrows of the Chinese government as it excludes China and quite obviously it's an attempt by the U.S. to contain China's rising influence in the region. So how South Korea will deal with China's discontent uh, remains an important task for President all right. So this is quite interesting because uh, when the prime, uh, sorry, the uh, foreign ministers of uh, South Korea and China met, uh, I think uh, the Chinese side had said, "Listen, I mean, kind of hold back on joining these U.S.-led initiatives. Uh, you know, this is what we want." Uh, obviously, not the case right now. IPF being one of them. Uh, what's your take on South Korea joining? Uh, this uh, U.S.-led initiative, the IPEF. Let's start off with you, uh, Chisun. Well, joining the IPEF is hardly a surprise because ever since he was a candidate, he said that his focus is going to be restoring the relations with the U.S. And personally, I think joining IPEF or some kind of economic framework led by the U.S. was going to happen sooner or later. And I know um, that we are heavily dependent on China with our economy, but we all have seen how being too dependent on a single nation can lead to instability. For me, I think a fair comparison would be investment. So diversifying a portfolio is always a smart tactic. Yeah, again, I mean, that was kind of uh, what we saw before, right? Uh, there was times when uh, there was a shortage of, uh, what was it, the urea solution. Uh, we were saying that there was too much reliance on, you know, Chinese China 
And so when they weren't distributing it, uh, you know, they were saying, you know, we need to diversify the portfolio. But the bigger picture, picture out of this is, is it, you know, to diversify the portfolio or is it to, again, uh, join the U.S.-led initiative to stray going to go away uh, from China is the big question. But uh, Talon, what about yourself? What's your take on South Korea joining the IPF? You know, among the founding members of the IPF include Japan, Australia, the Philippines, uh, New Zealand and India and Singapore. And I want to zoom in on Singapore. You know, it's a country where nearly 75 percent of the population are of Chinese descent. And yet Mm. it amazes me how Singapore successfully balances its relations with the U.S. and China and quite often keeps while keeping a cozy military ties with Taiwan even. And so I think there's quite a lot to learn from this uh, Singapore's dignified, if you will, diplomacy. And having said that, I welcome South Korea's participation decision to participate in this uh, new U.S.-led initiative. A top U.S. expert on North Korea and um, international affairs in the Indo-Pacific region, Victor Cha, I remember him once saying in an interview that uh, South Korea may eventually be isolated from all these U.S.-led groupings uh, and seeing all these global struggles in the past few years, such as global supply chain bottleneck and uh, the outbreak of COVID-19, the unprecedented uh, consequences that we're seeing already from climate change, I think it is about time that South Korea elevates its cooperation uh, and its uh, ties with uh, the other regional players to better cope with these issues that we call the new security issues. But of course, we shouldn't rush it. I think we should take incremental steps. And there's one major hurdle that we need to overcome, and that is having needing to form closer ties and even closer military ties with Japan when taking more active participation uh, in in all of these U.S.-led groupings, because it would mean closer ties with Japan and closer military ties even with Japan. The public sentiment uh, towards Japan right now, not friendly at all. Uh, Seoul-Tokyo relations still remain icy chilly. And so that is one of the hurdles that we need to overcome. And so, yeah, I think we should take incremental steps uh, to make sure not to provoke China too much, but I think we are headed in the right direction. Yeah, except I'm not 100% sure how like the people will feel about uh, close cooperation militarily with Japan, only because of, again, the historic issues, right? I mean, that's uh, I think the first step is kind of uh, improving the economic uh, relations between the two countries, uh, first things first. But uh, what's interesting with the IPF, right? So you name some of these countries, and uh, these all the countries that you mentioned there, well, not all, uh, they also include members of the Quad, mm-hmm. right? And of course, uh, South Korea, it seems like right now the consensus is not, they're not going to be joining the Quad per se, but they're going to be joining the Quad as a working group is the consensus right now. Uh, so you have the IPF, which is basically the economic framework, and then the Quad being like kind of the defense network uh, amongst those countries, right? So the big question is, it's... I know it's good to diversify the portfolio, but when you have the IPF and potentially joining the Quad as a working group, are you guys concerned maybe then are we too isolating China right now? Because they are the the largest trading partners of South Korea. Is that a concern that comes to your minds when we talk about this? Jisun. Hmm. Well, that's a very tricky question, and that is definitely going to be one of the biggest problems that we are going to be facing. But um, right now, we have the Shanghai lockdowns, and we have seen so many difficulties with regarding exports to China. So I 
think um, I think China might feel that they are being a bit isolated, but in the end, uh, the cooperation will have to be restored. Uh, and for now, I think it is the smart tactic to join the IPF. Yeah, but I mean, again, COVID nineteen it could be like a temporary thing. But Talon, what about yourself? I mean, is 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 this uh, is it too abrupt? Right? I mean, they're kind of going at the IPF and potentially working group for the Quad. So, which is exactly why I said we need to take incremental steps. And yeah. you brought a very important point. About China, but I think I'm more concerned about South Korea being isolated from all the new groupings, all mm-hmm. the new regional groupings, than uh, having uh, with uh, then uh, its relations with China uh, going sour. I think I'm more concerned about South Korea in the end being isolated from all these groupings, having just China in mind. I think we will have to carefully and very thoroughly weigh the pros and cons of this. And I don't have uh, exact data or numbers to back my argument right now. But I think we should learn from countries like Singapore as well as Australia. Remember how Australia very adamantly uh, reacted um, and uh, responded to China's what was it was it was it about Uria Uri, solution Uri, right yeah. but look at Australia now is it still struggling I don't think so it found its own ways of handling things without uh, by reducing its reliance on China also our relations with China really got uh, really sour got sour when uh, we deployed that but then now it got a lot better so even if uh, the things are going to go bad or south for a while I'm pretty sure that we're going to recover and overcome the crisis. Yeah, again, I mean, uh, just the thing is, I think South Korea has done over the the several years, uh, they've done a fantastic job, I think, uh, building relations with many different countries, right? Uh, But again, it's these... Uh, groups that are being formed that's a little bit tricky, right? Because it, it, a lot of people are saying these groups are formed sort of to isolate certain regions from China is what it is. So when it's like openly saying that it's trying to isolate China, uh, you know, these teams, for, I'm never a big fan of teams forming. that's the reason. But again, if it doesn't impact South Korea too much, and I'm telling you, I think you make a very good point. There are countries I think South Korea could maybe learn from, like Singapore is a very good example. So uh, we'll see what happens. But another thing that we're uh, watching very closely is of course, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden Accepting, uh, expected to visit South Korea this week. Let's talk about what are his plans, uh, issues that are going to be discussed with the new South Korean president. Uh, Jisun, you have more. Yes, so U.S. President Biden is expected to visit Seoul on Friday in the afternoon this week. And this is going to be the first visit made by Biden since his administration. And that is uh, that will happen only 10 days after the launch of the Yoon administration. So that is going to be the earliest Korea-U.S. summit following a South Korean president's inauguration. As soon as he arrives, he will visit the Seoul National Cemetery to pay tribute on Saturday. And the official summit is set to happen on Saturday, the second day of Biden's three-day visit. And the main topics dealt in the summit is going to be economy and security. He's going to visit the presidential office in Yongsan, which is a new presidential office, at around 1.30 p.m. on Saturday. The presidents of the U.S. and South Korea will both sit down for a 90-minute long summit at around 4 p.m. Although the final details of the summit are yet to be finalized, uh, three main agenda are expected to be discussed at the summit table. First being the Allies' coordinated response against North Korea's provocations, especially against the backdrop of the regime's successive missile tests and apparent uh, preparations for a seventh nuclear test. The second agenda is ways to increase contribution on global challenges and last but not least, 
issues surrounding economic security. Then he will have dinner at the National Museum of Korea, located right next to the new presidential office. While it has yet to be officially confirmed, it is expected that Biden will visit to the will visit the Samsung Electronic Semiconductor Plant in Pyeongtaek, and this will include a personal tour by the vice president of the company, Lee Jae-yong. And Pyeongtaek is also a place where American troops are located. The Camp Humphreys is the biggest American military installation where 28,500 U.S. troops are stationed. Also, Biden is considering a visit to the demilitarized zone between the two Koreas on the border uh, between his departure to Japan on Sunday. So to sum up, by looking at his schedule, it is expected for Biden to talk about expanding the comprehensive strategic alliance uh, between South Korea and the U.S. And by comprehensive, it means the economy, industry and trade. Yeah, all right. So, I mean, another thing to look forward to, again, is uh, after uh, Biden makes this uh, trip to South Korea, he's going over to Tokyo, right, for the uh, the Quad Summit. And so whether or not the discussions on South Korea joining the Quad as a working group uh, after talks with uh, Yoon Sagara will be in the spotlight as well. Uh, guys, we're going to talk about North Korea now. We've been talk- talking about North Korea quite a bit uh, because of what's going on there, uh, the COVID-19 outbreak that, number one, surprised us last week with their one single Omicron, which turned into now hundreds and thousands and possibly uh, over a million cases. Apparently, uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has admitted the state's failure and inadequacy in his COVID-19 pandemic response, uh, criticizing high-ranking officials. So what exactly were his exact words, Tan? According to state media reports, Kim said that immaturity in coping with the crisis from the early stages and the slack response of the country's leading officials has fully revealed the quote-unquote vulnerable points of North Korea. Such measures against the virus have resulted in further increasing the complexity and hardships in the early period of the antivirus campaign when time is of the essence, is what he said. He also called for redoubled efforts to stabilize people's lives and stressed the need to more scrupulously organize the work to provide better living conditions and the supply of daily necessities to the people. His remarks came during a meeting of the Presidium of the Political Bureau on Tuesday. Members of the Presidium, including Cho Yong-won, the Secretary for Organizational Affairs of the Ruling Workers' Party's Central Committee, were among the top officials in attendance. But officials did show confidence that Pyongyang can successfully handle the pandemic situation. They claimed that the virus situation is improving. They pointed out that the current trend is showing a favorable turn thanks to the efficiency and scientific accuracy of the emergency antivirus measures in place. And unlike last time when Kim Jong-un appeared with a mask on during a party meeting where North Korea admitted COVID infections for the very first time after claiming to be COVID-free for over two years, he took the mask off again on Tuesday. And this is widely seen as a move to show his confidence to the people that the regime can handle the virus. North Korea reported more than 232,900 what they call fever cases yeah. nationwide, and six additional deaths, raising total fatalities to 62 as of Tuesday. The total number of fever cases stood at more than 1.72 million as of 6 p.m. Tuesday, more than 1.02 million of whom 
have fully recovered. At least 69,170 are under COVID treatment. It's kind of interesting. Uh, Kim Jong-un is now taking off his mask as a show to, to show confidence to his people because mm. uh, we found out the other day that he was wearing two masks. <laughs> right? Which showed that things were really serious. Right, So he goes from... <laughs> Wearing two masks to no mask. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure we're not the only ones that are watching very carefully at the situation over in North Korea. The international community certainly has uh, their analysis on the current situation. So, Chi you have more on that. Well, like Talon said, COVID 19 is spreading like wildfire in North Korea, which is raising concerns of the international community, including the UN Human Rights Office. North Korea tried to put people under strict isolation and implemented extreme measures. And according to the human, UN Human Rights office, this could have a devastating impact. This is because isolating its residents can block people from getting food or water supplies, uh, basically the basic needs of the people. And this is why the office also urged Kim Jong-un to take necessary and appropriate measures. And the UN is not alone. The WHO also expressed its concern. Uh, Yesterday, WHO's emergencies director said that North Korea is not using the tool that are now available. WHO has also said that the COVID-19 outbreak in North Korea is worrying for, uh, for a few variants or the new variants of the virus as the country is battling a rapid spread of the mysterious fever since late April. And he also said that the risks of the new variants are higher where transmission is unchecked. The director general of WHO also urged North Korea to share data and information regarding COVID. North Korea until recently claimed that the newly confirmed cases are zero, saying that COVID hasn't entered its borders. But then yesterday, the director general of WHO said WHO is deeply concerned at the risk of further spread of COVID-19 in the country, particularly because the population is unvaccinated and many have underlying conditions, putting them at risk of severe disease and death. Uh, He also said that the WHO has offered to provide necessary supplies, tests, medicines, and vaccines to help North Korea curb the spread of COVID. But today, North Korea reported more than 230,000 more cases and six more deaths uh, caused by the mysterious fever. And the infection death tally is more than 1.7 million and 62, respectively, like Talon has just mentioned. Uh, North Korean authorities have claimed that there were only only a small number of cases of the Omicron variant and said that all the other symptoms are simply, uh, quote unquote, mysterious fever. And they didn't confirm that it is COVID. But experts outside has pointed out that most of the this mysterious fever seems to be COVID. Yeah, I just feel like they don't have the test kits, right, to, to show that uh, all these people are indeed uh, testing positive for COVID-19. So they're basically checking the temperatures and going, OK, they have high fever and they're sick. Uh, this is a mysterious fever and whatnot but i mean it is i think it's a lot more serious uh than it the numbers show because again the lack of testing kits i don't think there's a, this is the actual numbers mm-hmm. here even mm-hmm. if they get assistance from covax uh experts are saying it's not enough um surely i'm not sure if the assistance they're getting from china is going to be enough i know they're even opening their hands uh, to uh, russia which country that's busy with the other stuff right now. And this is more serious because this is the first time seeing COVID spread to the country of fully unvaccinated people. Yeah, but you see, the thing is, I don't think think this is the first time they're they're reporting it. I I, I think Mm. it's always been there, right? It's just that 
it's just like here in South Korea, like we were managing to kind of have our, you know, COVID-19 tallying like the thousands, the low thousands. And then the Omicron came. That's when like hundreds and thousands, uh, we saw massive numbers pop up. And North Korea, because their borders were so tightly closed, like they had some infection numbers during the Alpha and the Delta and mm-hmm. so forth. I think it just got really explosive during the Omicron, just like all the other countries out there. And they just said it just started now, which I, I honestly don't believe, to be honest with you. And what I think what s h i s o n s saying, I think her point is it's more all the more worrisome because we're talking about uh, a whole nation, a whole unvaccinated yeah, nation. Yeah. Like yes. What would happen to them? Yeah, which is why, I mean, like Kim Jong-un was saying, like, they were immature with the early stages of the outbreak, uh, which, I mean, he was kind of blaming the high officials, but ultimately he's making the decision not mm-hmm. to accept those vaccines at the early stages, right? When, you know, number of countries and also the COVAX were going to distribute them. But uh, is it too late is the big question right now. Um, and why wouldn't they accept global help, global vaccine aid? Well, I just felt like because, and this is, my, this is just my take, I think they were afraid that, number one, they were going to leverage that for discussions on denuclearization. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically saying, listen, we'll give you vaccines, but you guys have to stop your nu- you know, nuclear no, weapons. No, global organizations aren't going to do that. Maybe uh, if they well, get... No, no, not COVAX, because also Washington and South Korea did they, offer on the oh, side. Oh, they need to offer to COVAX yeah, to begin yeah. with. And yeah. I also think that Kim Jong-un has a, a god-like reputation in North Korea, and getting help from outside yeah, is yeah, going yeah. to look de- good yeah, definitely to damage his reputation. Yeah, imagine like, what would it look like if they found out, the people found I'm sure like, the news wouldn't be reported. Like, KCNA won't be saying, oh, you know, North Korea, the great country and the great leader accepted vaccines from South Korea. Mm-hmm. But they've received tons and tons, billions and billions of food aid before. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Why, why should it be different now when it's more urgent? Because from the very start, they kept on touting that we were doing a fantastic job <laughs> with the antivirus measures, and now they can't go back, right? I, I mean, it, it's always a mystery, I think, with uh, North Korea. But for sure, I mean, it, it could have been better if they just did kind of just accept the, the, the help in the first place. But uh, speaking of which, I mean, you know, we talked about how, uh, you know, South Korea has been really concerned about this, but the U.S. has really expressed concerns over this, saying supporting, that it really does support providing Uh, you know, humanitarian assistance like the COVID-19 vaccines. But Pyongyang is, despite all of this, uh, with the situation that the country is going through, they're widely expected to conduct a nuclear test. Uh, we've been talking about this. But let's get the details of this, t a n Right. So a State Department spokesperson, Ned Price, on Tuesday said during a regular briefing that unfortunately the DPRK has refused all vaccine donations from COVAX to date. When asked if the U.S. would support the international vaccine sharing program, he explained that he called it unfortunate because the U.S. is deeply concerned about the apparent COVID outbreak within North Korea and how it might affect the North Korean people. But he once again said the U.S. is willing to support the provision of vaccines to the DPRK. Another State Department Department spokesperson has reportedly told Yonhap News Agency earlier that the U.S. had no plans to share COVID-19 vaccines with North Korea from its own supplies, but that it would support any effort by the, uh, the international groups to assist the North. During the briefing, Ned Price also accused Pyongyang of neglecting the needs of its people, saying that there is a great irony or perhaps even a tragedy in that even as the DPRK continues to refuse the donation of apparently much-needed COVID vaccines, they continue to invest 
invest untold sums in ballistic missile and nuclear weapons programs uh, that do nothing to alleviate the humanitarian plight of the people. He went on to slam the regime, saying the DPRK leadership continues to enrich themselves while the people suffer, apparently now with the added burden of COVID-19. He quite bluntly also criticized that the U.S. has never seen the DPRK regime prioritize the humanitarian concerns of their own people over these destabilizing actions. Yeah, even after we saw the reported the first Omicron case uh, in North Korea, they ended up test firing three short-range ballistic missiles, right? Uh, North Korea's ambassador to Moscow, Shin Hong-char, uh, meeting with Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Igor Morgulov to discuss cooperation and COVID-19 response. So, obviously, we're seeing not only some uh, assistance from uh, China, but potentially Russia as well. Tan, how much do, you know, do we know about this particular meeting? Well, according to Russia's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Tuesday, the two discussed various bilateral issues, including Pyongyang-Moscow cooperation to curb the spread of COVID-19. The ministry did not discuss disclose further details of the meeting, but it's presumed that talks were centered on Russia's support for tackling COVID-19 in North Korea. Earlier on Tuesday, the Russian embassy in North Korea told a Russian news outlet that foreign embassies in Pyongyang have been in strict quarantine due to COVID-19 since last week. It added Pyongyang's foreign ministry is strongly advising foreign embassies not to even set foot outside the embassy zones. Right, so we're going to go from uh, the dire situation in North Korea to uh, South Korea now with COVID-19. Certainly things are improving, but it's not actually going down as much as we had hoped so. Still in the 30,000s. Uh, Chisong, let's get the latest details. Well, South Korea reported 31,352 new COVID-19 infections today, remaining in the 30,000 range for two straight days. And this figure is the lowest figure reported on a Wednesday. Meanwhile, yesterday, Korea's COVID-19 heroine, Jung Eun-kyung, left the office of KDCA as the chief. She was the heroine behind Korea's battle with the new coronavirus for the past two years and five months. She practically lived at the agency to swiftly react to emergency and she, as she left she said there were many challenges caused by uncertainty but thanks to the trust the people of korea had in the prevention agency and the dedication medical personnel showed we were able to overcome the covid crisis and for that i extend my greatest gratitude she also said that she has a quote-unquote heavy heart because she has to leave before COVID is completely over. Uh, she was recognized as the heroine and was the most watched mouth during the onset of COVID-19 outbreak as she briefed the nation daily on the developments in calm and reassuring voice and made the Times 100 most influential people of 2020. Uh, she has now left the KDC, KCDA as President Yoon Seok-yeol named Baekgyeong-nan, an infectious disease professor at Seonggyeonggwan University as new chief. KDSCA chief uh, Chung Kyung, uh, I should say former now, uh, was just an incredible person. Mm -hmm. I think there was not a single person here in Korea who was not thankful. Um, her leaving, I guess her post was one of the most, uh, one of the saddest things to see, to be honest yeah. with you. Uh, but uh, I, who was she to you guys? Um, I mean, she certainly did help out 
everyone here in Korea. But uh, if you could, I guess, send out a message to uh, Chung Eun Kyung, uh, what would it be starting off with you, Tan? You know, it was quite ironic how I felt quite reassured and calm despite the surging cases, surging number of infections and uh, infections and worsening situation. It was just uh, very reassuring just to see her and hear her calm yeah, and reassuring yeah. voice and her tone during uh, the regular briefings. And it was quite heartbreaking for me to see her face get thinner and thinner and her dark circles get darker and darker each the day. Wh- whiting, the hairs getting whiter. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But um, yeah, nothing. I have nothing but total respect, uh, sincerest gratitude uh, for her. She's a true heroine. She's an iron lady and she, I think, definitely deserves the title the Times 100 Most Influential People of 2020. Uh, I think she was also the symbol of transparency yeah. uh, mm. of, uh, of our government's COVID measures. And so, yeah, nothing but respect. Thank you so much. Well, I was going to say the same thing. She deserves all the respect from all the Korean people. And she has been one of the most inspiring female leaders of mm. this nation and all for, for all times. And I still remember the photo of Jung Eun-kyung going to work with the hair roll, uh, which really shows how hectic her schedule was. <laughs> right. Yeah, and her dedication to I her job. I remember that. Well. I remember <laughs> that photo, too. It was really heart, heart, heart-touching. Uh, it's just incredible, right? And I think uh, what really stood out for me is the fact that, you know, for example, if you go to the United States, uh, you have Dr. Anthony Fauci, who might be kind of equivalent to uh, Chung mm. Kyung. But there's like people who are not big fans of uh, <laughs> Dr. Fauci. But here in yeah. Korea, despite whatever, you know, political ideas right. you have, they were always saying, but do not touch right. Chung Kyung. It's like, <laughs> she was, heroine. yeah, it, it was, I think there was, all arenas, mm. I think people mm. uh, showed only but respect mm. for her. And uh, we, again, uh, thank you for your great work. And, uh, yeah, it is unfortunate that she couldn't continue on because the pandemic is still going. But uh, I think uh, Korea was able to be praised for their mm. K-quarantine thanks mm-hmm. to her. So there you have it, guys. Thank you guys for the report and your insights on some of these issues. Uh, stay safe and we'll see you guys again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.